0: My mother lied to me when I was a child. Now, I don't want to be too hard on her. After all, I grew up at a time when lying to children was routine. Any topic that embarrassed adults was deemed inappropriate for kids. Sex, bodily functions, adult foibles of all kinds, finances, birth, death, sex... Probably better at lying than most. She not only lied with her silence on all those terrible topics, when asked a direct question, she lied to my face. An example, not a word was spoken in front of us kids about my Aunt Carol's divorce. When it occurred to me one day to ask, didn't there used to be an Uncle Kenny? <laughs> my mother said simply, Flatly, no. (laughs) And I was left to struggle with my memories of the man who had fathered my little cousin. (laughs) The result, years later, when I began writing novels for young people, I had one overarching goal, to be a truth teller. No matter what topic I took on, I wrote it straight, For instance, in 1977, I published a novel for middle graders that dealt with sexual molestation in the name of Jesus. You'd better believe I had a reputation in my field, and I was proud of it. I was not my mother. I could be counted on never to lie to my readers, either by my silence or by my words. Life never happens in a straight line, though. About 15 years into my career, a change came along, a deep one. I left my marriage of 28 years and formed a relationship with a woman. I was entirely open about who I discovered myself to be. I was open with my husband's congregation as I left the marriage, he was a pastor, with my writing students, with my friends. Some accepted this new knowledge of me, some turned away. But I hid nothing except, have I mentioned that I am a children's writer? Have I mentioned that this all happened 25 years ago? Have I mentioned that a librarian in California said to me one day, speaking of a well-known picture book writer, we know he died of AIDS, but we don't say it because his books would stop selling instantly. Have I mentioned that publishing and speaking with a bit of teaching on the side is my only source of income? Have I mentioned that I like to eat? (laughs) Just as I was turning this corner in my life, my career was blossoming. One of my novels won an important award. I was traveling all over the country, speaking to young people and to adults. I was still writing about hard topics, topics I cared about passionately. I was still a truth teller except for this one small matter of who I was. And, well, I had to survive, didn't I? Then one day the inevitable happened. I looked at myself and asked, what kind of a person are you? You live in a world where young people are dying, literally killing themselves for lack of support and information about their sexuality. They are dying because no one is willing to tell them that they can be who they are and still live a happy and productive life. You, I reminded myself, are in a unique position to to reach them, and you are choosing silence. What else could I do? I had to come out professionally, but I needed to do it quietly because I am, at my core, a quiet person. And I needed to do it in a way that would be useful rather than sensational. My first thought was to go to other gay and lesbian children's writers, there are lots of us floating around out here, and say, come out with me. Let's put together a book of our own coming out stories so gay and lesbian kids will know we're here. But before I'd extended the first invitation, I realized I couldn't do that. The decision to come out is always personal, and at that time, it would have been more than personal. Coming out would have been dangerous for anyone writing for young people. A person can choose that kind of risk, but no one can ask it of anyone else. And so I came up with a different idea. First, I found a courageous editor who accepted my plan. Then I approached other writers in my field without regard to their sexuality. I chose people whose names would be noticed and whose work would be fine and asked them each to write a short story for me. My only requirement was that the story center on a gay or lesbian character. The collection Came out to be called Am I Blue? Coming Out from the Silence. And it was published almost 20 years ago to more acclaim than I could have dreamed. And that would have been the end of the story, except for one thing. I was working with two editors at the time. One happened to be a gay man, the other a lesbian. When they learned what I was doing, the man supported me. In fact, he contributed a story to my collection but the woman was very concerned. She didn't say it, but I knew she was afraid she would never be able to publish me again. When MI Blue was almost completed, the editor who had been my supporter asked a question. Was I going to come out in my personal essay attached to the story I had contributed to the collection? I told him I was, that coming out was, for me, part of the point. He was appalled. His support vanished. I was thrown off balance. Should I revise my essay? I still had time, but just barely. People were going to guess anyway because my name was on the collection. Was it better to leave them guessing? Then my other editor, the one who had never approved of my editing the book, asked the same question. I gave her the same answer and held my breath, waiting for the inevitable response. What I got was silence, a long silence. Then she sighed and said something I've never forgotten. Well, she said, maybe for every door that's closed, another will be opened. That, I said to myself, sounds exactly right. And I let my essay stand. As you can see, I'm still eating. I'm proud that Am I Blue, coming out from the silence, has played its small part in the revolution we've all witnessed these past 20 years. I'm grateful for the letters I've received telling me how these stories changed lives, even saved lives. And I'm delighted to say that last year I contributed an essay to a book called The Letter Q. The book is comprised of essays from 64 Different gay and lesbian writers for young people, all of us acknowledging our sexuality and offering advice to our younger, less certain selves. Sometimes it doesn't matter what the impulse is that sends us on our journeys. It matters only that we set off, taking each step with as much conviction and self honesty as we can muster. Who knew that my mother's well intentioned lies would teach me? to tell the truth. Who knew that the path she sent me on would lead me right here, back home, to the gold in my own heart? May it be so, and amen.
1: My junior year in college, I started an internship at a medical device company. This meant I moved from my dorm room in Wisconsin to an apartment in Ohio for a little over six months. I was lucky enough to have found a paid internship, well-paid in fact. It allowed me to get a place of my own. This was the first time I had lived totally alone, no roommate, no parents, I was living in a building with 12 other apartments at least, and it was in an apartment complex north of downtown Cincinnati. The complex had at least 50 buildings nestled in one of those many valleys that cut their way down to the Ohio River. My work at the internship was engaging and rewarding, but being introverted by nature, I was not eager to make friends, even though I did find some among the other interns. I did have a TV but it was a little 12-inch screen model that one of my mother's friends had donated. Looking back, the screen size and the lack of a couch were a blessing in disguise. (laughs) At the beginning, it was just freedom of choice to do whatever I wanted in that space. After binging on Star Trek The Next Generation marathons and long showers and singing out loud whenever I wanted, I had to ask myself, what did I really want to do next? This question led me to bigger questions. Like Henry David Thoreau at Walden Pond, The sufficiency apartment was my retreat into solitude and nature, except only in the mornings and after work and on weekends. Oh, and there was no pond. <laughs> but I did have a ravine. The ravine was what sold me on this particular room. My building was at the north end of the complex, and my windows faced out onto a forested ravine that was deep enough and wide enough to hide the residential neighborhood that was on the other side. As fall turned into winter and winter into spring, the small strip of grass between my patio and the trees became a parade route for an amazing amount of wildlife. Birds, some of them new southern birds to me, glided past my windows and flitted around the bushes. Squirrels, of course, but also deer and groundhogs, and even a turtle. My monastic life of packaged food and reading and walking deepened my awareness of myself with a capital S. I don't remember that I changed much at that time. I just became clearly aware of the constant dialogue of feelings and thoughts and desires. My self-awareness helped me see the world more clearly, much like the bright red cardinals made the spring leaves look even greener. I would later describe this part of my journey as learning the difference between being and feeling. I used to say, I am so angry, or I'm sad. But after my time alone, I realized that there was more to me than my feelings. Now I try to say, I am feeling so angry, or I am feeling really sad right now. It's a small change I know but it helps me frame things up in the right way. From my internship onward, I I worked to transform my unconscious stream of desires and feelings into a deliberate dialogue with myself and with the world. Who knew such a treasure and the key to it could be found in a cramped apartment in Cincinnati?
2: Year, while camping on a camping trip around Lake Superior, my partner and I came across a wondrous sight. We were hiking along the K-bean Trail in Ontario, and we began to notice these astounding gatherings of swallowtail butterflies, right in the middle of the trail, right in our path. Here and then there, and then there, these. Gatherings took our breath away, 15 to 20 butterflies falling all over and around one another in this puddling of shimmering bright yellow wings patterned and framed by black velvet outlines. It was like stained glass windows coming alive on the forest floor. We walked along just mesmerized by these stunning acts of beauty dotting the path, transforming our hike into a kind of wonderland. Yet as we walked further and looked closer, we realized that the swallowtails were congregating on these gray, hairy mounds, which upon further inspection, we realized was wolf crap. Yes, my friends, you have heard me correctly. Crap. And the butterflies were in absolute ecstasy. (laughs) They trembled and they fell on one another in pleasure, broadly displaying their wings or shutting them tight as they sunk their tongues even deeper into the dung. Later, we learned that while flower nectar is the primary source of energy for butterflies, they need other nutrients and minerals to fly and reproduce, which are not found in flowers. A full and nutritious diet for the butterfly includes nutrients found in urine, dung, and standing water. Yum! you got to love nature. <laughs> so as I thought this week about pilgrimage and what calls us into the spiritual journey, I kept circling back to this scene of the puddling butterflies because I realized that many of my most profound journeys were not undertaken because I had a beautiful dream prophesied And uh, looking for a pot of gold somewhere in a distant land or some romantic quest that I intentionally undertook. Most times, the call to pilgrimage has been trying to suck whatever nutrients and minerals I can from the crappiest things I've ever lived through. (laughs) It's the truth. I don't talk much about this turn of events anymore that that precipitated one of the scariest nights I've ever lived through. But it was that night that I was called into a pilgrimage that led to a pot of gold, not behind my stove, but in my backyard. So my partner and I, had moved into the Mack-Groveland neighborhood some 30 years ago. Amazing. And as Marion pointed out, being identified as gay or lesbian at that time was kind of a risky and dangerous business. I was living with one foot firmly planted in the closet and the other foot out. In the theater and music scene where I lived and breathed, I was out and I was embraced. But in our neighborhood, in afternoon chats over the fence, I was definitely in the closet. As I say this out loud right now, it seems ridiculous, but that's how we lived. In little chats I had with neighbors, I would characterize my relationship with Rebecca as housemates or avoid the topic altogether. And we had heard through the grapevine that a couple of our neighbors didn't trust gay or lesbian people because they were, quote, always on the make. So Rebecca and I kept a low profile. Indeed, we tried to be good neighbors. We lent our garden tools to anybody who wanted a garden tool. We shoveled our neighbors' walks early in the morning so they would be surprised by a clean sidewalk. We would stop weeding the flower bed when the neighbor girls begged us to watch them do somersaults one more time down the boulevard. Oh, yes, we were good neighbors. But one sweltering summer night, having lived in the neighborhood for about two years, we went to bed cranky and very, very hot. We had no air conditioning, so the fans were blasting and every window and door was flung wide open, just trying to get a cross breeze going. And Rebecca had a really big day the next day. She was going for her second interview at the Met Council to move up in the organization, and she was nervous, and she was agitated, and she was really Hot. <laughs> so we had finally fallen asleep around midnight that Thursday night when all of a sudden, across the alley, we hear Elvis Presley crooning at the top of his lungs about hound dogs and heartbreak and all. Oh, it was terrible. We tried burying our heads under our pillows. We tried plugging our ears to no avail. And, and finally, Rebecca had just had it. She jumped out of bed with a full head of steam. That's it, she said. And I knew that her Chicago diplomacy was about to come rolling out of her mouth. So I begged her, don't, 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 don't do anything, don't do anything. Just just let it go. It'll be all right. I'm sure he'll turn it down in just a minute. But she'd had it. And she walked out onto our bedroom balcony and called out across the alley. Hey, Buddy. Can you turn it down? I got to work in the morning. Whew, I thought, no swear words. <laughs> Disaster averted, yes. It was quiet for a moment, and then all hell broke loose. The music was cranked even louder, and our alley neighbor, whom we had never met, started screaming at us at the top of his lungs, calling us every derogatory, horrible, slanderous thing he could think of to call a woman. And then he started in on every horrible, slanderous thing he could come up with for lesbians. Rebecca and I peered through the curtain and he screamed, I see you! I see you, you blankety-blank-blank-blank! We couldn't really see him, and then all of a sudden, we heard this beating on the side of the house. He had picked up a two-by-four and was beating our house, beating the fence, continuing to scream at the top of his lungs, and Rebecca said something like, I'm calling the cops, and me with my foot firmly planted in the closet said, no, don't do that, he's our neighbor. He's our neighbor. We have to live here. And the beating and the screaming went on for a while and then it stopped. And we were shaking and we were crying. And I wished I'd had a dog or a gun or something because it sounded like he was going to break into our house. We were so scared. But he stopped and I remember saying, See, see, it's all right. It's all over, everything's fine. Then we heard the guy screaming at our front walk I have your address, you blankety blank blank. I'm coming for you. Do you hear me? I'm coming for you. Then silence, and then we heard him at the back of our fence pounding and yelling all over again. I was terrified. I was terrified. I was a crying mess, begging Rebecca not to call the cops. And we finally decided to call the neighbors across the street, the couple whose children we had watched somersault down the street, the ones we'd loaned the most garden tools to, the ones who didn't trust lesbians, but we'd had the most interactions with over those two years. Terry was African American and Karen was white, and I identify their ethnicity for a reason because when I called at one in the morning explaining what was going on, the first words out of Terry's mouth was, It's probably some drunk white boy, right? Look, you gotta call the cops, he said. I've been through this before. You have got to call the cops. I'm coming over, just give me a minute. And hey, when you call the cops, make sure you tell them that your neighbor is black. I don't want to get picked up. The cops came. Our neighbor down the street had called long before we even picked up a phone. The guy was arrested. Terry and Karen, the two cops, all stood in our living room. They held our hands and tried to comfort us as Rebecca and I, took turns throwing up in the bathroom. It was the longest 20 minutes I have ever lived through in my entire life. That night was just a big pile of crap. The next morning, Rebecca left for work haggard and shaky for her interview. And I was walking around the house with no skin on my body, not an inch. I was so raw. I was so run over. And then the first butterfly landed. The neighbor, two houses down, said something like this. And I don't know if I can say this without crying. It was the most beautiful phone call. Ruth, We heard what happened to you last night, and uh, we want you to know something. We love you as our neighbors. We understand about you and Rebecca, and we want you to know we will not tolerate bigotry in our neighborhood. We love you. We want you here. Phone call after phone call started to come in. The butterflies were beginning to gather, and I, I found myself taking the opportunity to talk a little bit about myself, about this gift of beautiful Rebecca in my life. I was starting to suck the nutrients out of this horrible, horrible experience. We were all gathered around this big pile of dung and this beautiful constellation of tender words, flowers on the doorstep, invitations to dinner, and hugs began to emerge just like the stained glass wings of the butterflies on the forest floor. I started putting together the true meaning of an old adage, You can choose to live in fear or love. And when all is said and done, those are really your two big choices in life. And I had been living in such fear. Fear of people finding out about me and cutting off so many opportunities to live in love. A year or more later, while raking the leaves in the backyard, I saw my neighbor who had terrorized us that night, doing the same thing, raking his leaves. I almost ventured across the alley to thank him for the blessing of community he had so unknowingly instigated. I didn't make it, (laughs) but I did wave, and he waved back. Our neighbors and we were on a pilgrimage together. We were and still are on a path to true and authentic community. Now I'm not so naive as to assume that every heartache, every tragedy can be turned around in such a way that it feeds you rather than brings you to your knees and buckles your spirit. But over the course of my life, I've begun to ask myself a different set of questions when tragedy strikes, when I feel lost in the muck of my heartbreak and my hurt. I've begun to ask, what is this about? What is this about? What journey am I being called upon to take? What and where is the treasure that shifts my wretchedness or my ordeal in another direction and in fact feeds the deepening of my soul? More and more I've found strength in communities of faith. My ministerial colleagues, this beautiful congregation, old friends who ask the big questions and know me well enough to point me to the minerals hidden in the dung. More and more I'm beginning to listen and watch for the movement of good and grace, that thing we name but cannot name, that love that will not let us go, even in the most difficult interactions, in the midst of some of our biggest failures our biggest shortcomings. I'm beginning to follow butterfly wisdom. May we all take that to heart.